The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Uh, Fauna, I, I uh, think there's something we'd better tell you. What? What is it? Um, you said that you missed reading, most of all. Well, the love of books is something that we share with you. Unfortunately, it's gotten us into some trouble with the Ministry of Knowledge. Trouble? What, what kind of trouble? Well, um, there are some books which we didn't know had been banned, and uh, the police found them in our house. They were going to punish you for reading? Uh, no, actually, it was, it was the ideas in a book that some people felt challenged their whole way of life. But, but surely it can't be against the law to think. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, February the 14th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion. It's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. If you're among those who are simply getting sick and tired of hearing about fake news, well, I've got some bad news for you. Governments and corporate media interests are banding together to educate us on the dangers of fake news and of tampering with elections that don't give them the left-wing results that they want. Today on our show, I have some remarkable material to share that strikes at the very heart of the whole fake news discussion, when it started, how it started, why it started, and what all that has to do with Canada establishing its own Pravda network of fake news dissemination. But first, don't forget that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where you can offer your financial support to help us combat the very phenomenon that is the focus of our show today. I sifted through a lot of very disturbing material and research for today's show about a theme that the left pretends to treat lightly and superficially when everything for the left depends on this being taken very seriously. The fake news phenomenon and the whole issue of related censorship attempts both by the state and by private interests. If you haven't heard, here in Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government has been taking giant leaps and bounds towards controlling this country's news and commentary narrative. Whether it's government funding of private media outlets, the continued operation of the state broadcaster CBC, or the now-planned establishment of a fake news ministry, these are all actions aspiring to tyranny not to a free and democratic nation. Define fake news before censoring it, reads the Post Media News editorial headline of February 1st. Quote, The Liberal government has announced an ambitious plan to curb fake news, political misinformation, and foreign influence in the upcoming election. Some of this is worthwhile, such as the need for our cybersecurity experts to watch out for foreign actors meddling in our affairs. That said, there is much in what the Liberals announced on Wednesday that is not so commendable. In fact, some of it is downright worrisome. Take, for instance, how the government plans to spend $7 million for, quote, digital news and civic literacy programming, end quote. 
They say this is to help Canadians understand online deceptive practices. But then they go on to explain it will teach people to critically assess online news reporting and editorials. They do not clarify what reporting and editorials they're talking about. Is this just an attempt by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to slyly steer Canadians away from media outlets not singing his praises? That's the whole problem with the government's plan. They've so far failed to define any of their terms, reads the editorial. Well, no, that is the plan. Do not define their terms. Leave everything in a muddled approximation. It's the sure way to avoid being held accountable for anything you say and to let people draw their own conclusions and fill in their own blanks so that they'll give you their agreement without really knowing what they're agreeing to. To continue, fake news and misinformation mean different things to different people. What do they mean to the government? So far, we don't know, and that's a problem. (laughs) We'll have to stop again. No, it's not a problem because it doesn't matter. It would be a bigger problem if the government did define fake news because we already know what that means from observation. Fake news to the government is anything that's on the right. This is a left-wing government to whom facts don't matter. We already know that. And, as Danielle so astutely observed on a recent Danielle Metz show, to the left, fake and truth are merely two different narratives, each with equivalent legitimacy. I mean, they don't care. It's just all a narrative. Which narrative is going to win? Is it fake? Is it true? It doesn't really matter. The editorial continues. The government needs to define their terms before censoring for them. Otherwise, what is there to stop this from becoming an attempt by the government to arbitrarily denounce whatever they don't like? (laughs) Well, wow. Defining what they want to censor in no way ever justifies censoring anything. They already arbitrarily denounce what they don't like. Since when has this not been so? The editorial continues. The government is also creating a panel of senior bureaucrats who will try to figure out which things circulating in the online world are serious threats to a free election coming from a foreign source. They'll then give a news conference informing the public about these attempts. Oh, wow. I mean... I got a comment here again. This is so adding insult to injury that I'm at a loss for words. Is it not obvious that free nations do not need official pravdas when it's so easy and accessible to get accurate information simply by going online? In all the talk about fake information on the internet, the glaring part of the equation missing is that there is a lot of accurate and trustworthy sources of information on the internet, far more than I could cite anywhere in the so-called mainstream media. And that's a fact. The editorial continues. It sounds okay in principle, but how will it work in practice? These announcements could cause further public confusion. This is so conservative. (laughs) No, it does not sound okay in principle. To what possible principle is this National Post editorial referring? Quote, we believe Canadians already are informed and intelligent people capable of sorting through the various news stories that come their way, it reads. Well, if that's true, then how did the idea of government news conferences informing the public about serious threats sound okay in principle to the same editorial writer? Am I missing something here? But the kind of discussions that mainstream media has about fake news are completely superficial and meaningless. 
I'm still waiting, by the way, to hear about how the Russians were in any way responsible for Trump getting elected, or even if they were, how, how that would make any difference to the United States having a great president right now. If the Russians were responsible for that, then we should invite the Russians in a little more often, don't you think? After all, where is it written that foreign influence, quote-unquote, where is it written that it can't possibly be beneficial to the country in which that influence is being exerted? If the Russians brought to our attention a fact or circumstance that was proven and demonstrated to be true, shouldn't we have welcomed such foreign influence? It's a given that every nation acts in its own self-interest. Now, beneath all of the pretense about fake news and Russian collusion is an even greater pretense, and that's this whole notion of political election interference which I have yet to see demonstrated in a way that has materially affected anyone's particular electoral vote or any electoral outcome. So why all the fear of fake? After all, most voters don't have a clue about politics or government. Never have. They wouldn't know fake from fantasy from reality. Moreover, there are only two partisan electoral options in the United States, you know, realistically speaking, Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And here in Canada, we have Tweedle 3, okay? So what in the end is really the concern that somehow the wrong political party of the two possible is in power and that's unfair because of influences that may have come from beyond the electoral boundaries of an election contest? I don't get it. There are only two choices, Republican and Democrat. And whether a party wins an election because of reality or because of perception is hardly an issue. 99% of the time, it's all about perception. So why does fake news even matter? What all this tells me is that there's a huge divide between what the people think and want their governments to do and what the government thinks and wants to force the people to do. Now on this side of our upcoming bumper from a January 11th CJBK AM 1290 roundtable discussion about seniors spreading fake news. This is an example of the superficiality and dismissive attitudes towards fake news that is routinely expressed by those on the left. But coming back on the other side of the bumper, contrast what we're about to hear with what we'll hear from, of all people, Faith Goldie, who has had her own share of trials and tribulations with the establishment's censors and censorship. Her concerns are serious and considered. Yet she is among those we're supposed to fear in the wake of fake news. All right, this is a great story. Fake news. We all know what it is now. Um, and it turns out seniors are guilty of spreading fake news the most. People over the age of 65 were most likely to share false news stories in the run-up to the 2016 presidential election. Uh, the study uh, tracked 1,300 willing participants. This is important to point out when it comes to Facebook these days. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they, they tracked them, and it turned out that the people over age 65 were most likely to spread that kind of news. Is that I'm, surprising? I'm shocked. No. I'm not, <laughs> not Older people not vetting their sources. And then also on Facebook, they still think that as soon as it comes up that it's got to be true, right? I've heard that from people. Or you hear people talk about something, like you overhear them talking about it, and you're like, that is not even close to the truth. And then you realize that they just overheard somebody else talking. I also, there was an older lady I used to work with who overheard a doctor talking about a cancer diagnosis wasn't about her but she went home and told her whole family and told everyone that she had cancer 
and it ended up she didn't but it was just one of those things she overheard she got confused and then so it's one of those things I guess I'm not shocked at all (laughs) no (laughs) I'm with Ken I think that kids like I think about my kids and their age they screen stuff like they if they see something the first thing they do is google they start to research and try and figure out the answer but I think most other people are just like forward well send. Yeah. I think the default setting for young people is doubt and I think the default setting for older people is belief I, I think why would someone go out of their way to make something up and put it on the internet Whereas young people are like, that's what the internet is. I don't know. That's a really like naive way of of looking at thing. I think that older people are more skeptical, and they and they're really rooted in their beliefs. Like this to me, it's Facebook, but it's a different version of the porch. You know. Well, maybe it's a bunch because of people getting out together on the porch, just spreading lies about the Williamsons. True. <laughs> oh, they are a terrible family. The Williamsons are awful. Yeah, no, but maybe that's because that's how those that generation got the news, right? You would get a newspaper, you'd see it on the news, and so you took that as fact. So when you see something come across, maybe you just don't doubt it as much. I don't know. But I think so. My parents are, are older, and they they are skeptical, and they do look at things, so they wouldn't fall into that category. Yeah, we're making real generalizations here, because your parents are like that. My parents are just gullible as all heck. They yeah. will, if they're, if they see it, if it's on the internet, if it's a printed word, then it's probably true. That's, they, and they would believe it. I think there's an age where it's like, because I think of my kids even when they were 10 or 11 and everything they read, or if a teacher told them something, it had to be true. true. And we would have these conversations where I'm like, that's not necessarily fact. So I think there's like this age where you believe, you believe, you believe, and then you become skeptical. And then somewhere in there, at some point you go, okay, maybe it's there. There must be some truth behind it. So it's like, where does that start to shift and and falter like where people start to become cynical again and how do you talk them out of it right like Ken's parents how many times have you had that conversation I've stopped you know I used to (laughs) my my mother would share something directly from Facebook and it was like not even from Facebook she would just you know post something that's completely wrong and then I would send her a message I'm like hey mom where did you where did you read that oh I saw it on a on a on the side of Facebook like oh no oh in the ad sections yeah Yeah, yeah. exactly Melissa McCarthy was arrested yesterday I can't believe it like no mom that's not do just a tiny bit of research so I've just stopped I've just I've given up like just it's gonna happen so I let it happen Canada, take off the tin foil and lose the VPN because the feds have just announced their big plan to combat fake news and foreign interference during Canada's 2019 federal election. The government has created a task force to combat tampering. It also selected five senior bureaucrats 
to inform the public and political leaders if there's meddling. Indeed, Canucks, we all knew we were a target, never mind Mueller's runaway Russia investigation that shored up exactly no Russia-related indictments. We all know that the Kremlin is heavily invested in the spread of modern nationalism, and he is going to stop at nothing until this zeitgeist finds its way to Canadian shores. Here are the things they'll be focusing on. Number one, combat foreign interference. The feds are going to be working with various federal bodies like CSIS and the RCMP in order to do this. Now, you might be thinking, what does foreign interference look like? Well, it might look like something like, say, a government giving money to media to push their agenda. Number two, they're going to strengthen organizational readiness. Now, I know what you're thinking. Organizational readiness. What does that look like? At first, you might think of a bunch of people getting together and mass disliking, I don't know, say a Facebook post or a meme. But seriously, the government says that it will include something called the, quote, critical election incident public protocol. If the government becomes aware of a, quote, interference attempt during the election, a panel of senior bureaucrats will be convened to figure out whether it's serious or not, a substantial threat to a free and fair election. And if so, a press conference is to be held to inform we the people. Number three, the government will have an expectation of social media platforms to act. And hey, I'm sure that social media platforms are going to love Justin for this. I mean, YouTube just this week announced new censorious algorithms to make sure that no conspiracy theories and fake news get out there. And it's not like they're giving us real guidelines. No, they say that the changes will also affect, quote, borderline content or videos that come close to violating the company's rules for content without technically crossing the line. Citizen preparedness for fake news. This is not a joke. Nope, their plan includes $7 million to fund workshops. Workshops that aim to teach Canadians how to sort through political disinformation as well as critically assess online news reporting and editorials. I don't know if these workshops are mandatory for all Canadians. I don't know if you get like a license that you're an expert in foreign interference, election meddling, and fake news. I don't know if they're just gonna be broadcast through our TVs, if we're gonna see little holograms when we get to the bus stops, you know, people teaching us how to read twitter.com. I don't know. What I do know is what the government has told me, and that's that $7 million of your money is gonna go into creating said workshops. Now, in case there are any slow kids over there in the back, let me explain to you why this is a really, really dangerous path we're now on. Justin Trudeau, the guy who's in charge of the country right now and his party is currently getting into the business of policing information about a campaign in which he seeks re-election. This is a massive conflict of interest. Secondly, literally, what is fake news? I think CBC is fake news. They think I am fake news. There's no legal definition. How expansive should our definition be? Just articles? What about memes or tweets or just a mean chirp? Things said on Facebook, for instance. And why should we trust a panel handpicked by the prime minister 
to decide for us. Thirdly, what qualifies as foreign interference? I'm not trying to be facetious over here, but if we do not have something, say like a strict definition, like a head of state or a state body actually directly influencing an election or a coup for that matter, then what are our markers? What if just enough American IP addresses retweet the same thing that's critical of the prime minister? Does that count as foreign interference? Lastly, what are the implications of our government working with an untold amount of social media organizations to try to shut down fake news at a time when what qualifies as news and journalism has frankly become more democratized than ever? There is no doubt a tremendous amount of people who identify, if you will, as journalists who are also just members of the public at large. Now, in stark contrast, where the CJBK panelists you know, all knew what fake news is, Faith Goldie had a much more realistic perspective and one that's much more honest. Quote, CBC is fake news. They think I'm fake news. There is no legal definition, end quote. And with that, she hit the nail on the head. That roundtable discussion we heard about seniors spreading fake news had nothing whatsoever to do with fake news other than for one super great irony. The panelists referenced the origin of their discussion to a Facebook source, a Facebook poll, and to noting that the fake news stories being spread by seniors related to the run-up to the 2016 U.S. presidential election. This is so significant that it can't be understated. In their very superficial and dismissive discussion about fake news, the roundtable panelists were active participants, pawns, if you will, in the whole fake news strategy. An older lady mistaking a private conversation about a cancer diagnosis and telling her family has nothing whatsoever to do with even just news, let alone the fake variety. That's not news at all. It's a nothing. It's life. It's a daily conversation. It's not news. So why, not, why don't we just drop this fake news discussion and have a discussion about true news? And we can get real news from sources that have earned their trusted reputations. It's as simple as that. However, two comments relating not to fake news, but to news consumers in that panel discussion caught my attention. One of them was this statement that the default setting among the young is doubt. The default setting among the older people is belief. Well, that hasn't been my experience. That's a generality that depends entirely on what the subject news matter is and the source of that news. When one of the panelists commented that, quote, my parents are gullible, if it's a printed word, my parents will likely believe it, end quote. Well, there's an understandable reason for that. First, in the days when things were printed, when the news was mainly printed, the source of that news could be held accountable. It couldn't just be edited online or retracted without consequence. Second, the print media of the past, for all its faults and biases, in the news department was held to a much higher standard of objectivity to the point where, in most instances, the media on the left and right would still fundamentally agree on a given set of facts and circumstances. Today, that is no longer the case. We live in the age where facts don't matter, and that's a reality that seniors, in particular, are still having a tough time accepting. But here's an opinion piece that really got me going. 
This is from the Globe and Mail of February 8th. Headline, Canada's plan to counter foreign interference is a good start, but the work's not done, written by Marcus Kolga. Just for the record, I'm going to read the whole thing through. I disagree with every word in here, and I'll tell you why when I'm done. Quote, For Western nations, the threat of foreign interference doesn't just mean bad actors working to affect the outcome of an election, but also the systematic undermining of our democracy by sowing discord and breaking down trust in our institutions, media, and society. And with a federal election looming, Canada needs to know it is a target for the kind of attacks we've already seen in Europe and the United States in recent years. While the Kremlin may not have an obvious champion in the coming federal election, attempts to amplify narratives that threaten to divide Canadians, such as those which promote anti-immigration and anti-globalism on both the right and left, will intensify. Measures announced last week by the Liberal government to address threats of foreign interference and disinformation targeting Canadian democracy and elections set a very good foundation for defending Canadian democracy against malign foreign interference. Regulations and specific details about how to curb the spread of disinformation on social media, for instance, are missing from the plan. These platforms have demonstrated a lack of commitment to counter attempts by foreign actors to spread propaganda. Adjusting platform and search algorithms to minimize the promotion of disinformation from known sources is also required. One of the most important features of the government strategy is funding for digital media literacy awareness and efforts to promote critical thinking when consuming news from various social media platforms, encouraging Canadians to diversify their media consumption and to do so through a critical lens will help build a healthy media environment that is resistant to the threat of foreign disinformation. It's an uphill battle, but we need to start somewhere. The government's proposed national task force made up of Canada's major law enforcement and intelligent agencies should also provide the effective monitoring and analysis that is required for an effective counter-disinformation campaign. I can't believe what I'm reading. The task force will alert other senior officials as well as a, quote, critical election incident protocol group, end quote, which is tasked with deciding when to inform the public of attempts to directly interfere with our elections. But a much-needed early warning system that speaks to the broader public is needed too. Canada should consider following the European model, where alerts and weekly digests of disinformation campaigns are published on an official website called EU versus Disinfo to forecast, address, and respond to pro-Kremlin disinformation. By working with our allies in NATO and the Group of Seven, as well as civil society groups and activists in Canada, such preemptive systems can be developed to alert Canadians to current disinformation and other forms of cyber attacks. Raising awareness of NGOs that represent foreign interests as well as their domestic supporters must also be a core government priority. So Canadian media, policymakers, and the public can make informed choices on important issues. Finally, the government response includes advising federal political parties about security protocols and disinformation, but this will require significant involvement in order to build trust and eliminate any doubt about partisan intent. And if they fail to do so, the stakes are high. 
Foreign and domestic disinformation actors can seize on these uncertainties in their efforts to break down trust in our system. The granting of high-level security clearance for representatives from each federal party is a good first step, too. But it is vitally important that federal party representatives also meet with each other on a scheduled basis, like the German system, in order to maintain ongoing understanding and to reinforce overall trust both during and beyond the writ period. The government strategies are a welcome start, but their success and our democracy depend on effective coordination and transparently nonpartisan implementation strategy, as well as additional measures to keep Canadians alert to all attempts to interfere with our democratic processes, end quote. My Lord, have you ever heard such BS? This is blithering crap. This article is fake opinion to the core. Fake, fake, fake. It strikes me as it's pure propaganda. It's the kind of thing you might expect from a media source that's getting paid by government subsidies, maybe. Notice what's cited as fake news. <laughs> Talk about anti-immigration and anti-globalism, which he lyingly attributes to both the right and left. But it's the left alone that would use the terms anti-immigration when we all know the concern is illegal, uncontrolled immigration, or anti-globalism when we all know the real concern is national sovereignty, identity, and self-determination. This editorial is evil, and it appeared in the pages of the Globe and Mail. The writer is described as a documentary filmmaker, human rights activist, and Russian disinformation expert. He's a senior fellow at the, get this, McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canadian Interest Abroad. <laughs> He's a foreign influencer by profession. Can anyone spell hypocrisy here? You know, a quicker and more honest way to achieve the results advocated by this writer would simply be to shut down all social media news outlets and simply let the government take over with its own brand of lying Pravda. That's what he's calling for. This fake commentary, printed in the pages of a newspaper, the Globe and Mail, you know, is, is hilarious. A paper that will assumedly be among the recipients of the Trudeau government's propaganda spending on fake ideologies, fake news, and fake democracy, you know? <laughs> you know, the irony currently is that Trudeau is accusing the Globe and Mail of printing false allegations about his SNC-Lavalin scandal that's capturing the attention of Canadian media these days. So I wonder, does that now mean that those appointed five senior bureaucrats must now call a press conference and warn us about the fake news coming from the Globe and Mail about this scandal? That I'd like to see. The writer is calling to put shows like Just Right out of existence entirely. You know, he complains that, quote, how to curb the spread of disinformation on social media, for instance, are missing from the plan. Adjusting platform and search algorithms to minimize the promotion of disinformation from known sources is also required, end quote. Well, Just Right has already been adjusted by this very tactic, and we gave you the disgusting details on some past broadcasts. Facebook arbitrarily considered our show, Just Right, to be a foreign political influence in the United States because we record the show in Canada. Apparently, our website being in the United States and our show being broadcast on WBCQ in Monticello, Maine, does not qualify as being in America. <laughs> of course, it's none of those things. It's just Facebook being dishonest and arbitrary about its motives. I noticed this article from Bloomberg News and the London Free Press, Zuckerberg on sidelines as Facebook shares slide. This is from January 4th, 2019. 
quote, Mark Zuckerberg's multi-billion dollar stock sale ground to a halt in the final months of 2018. The Facebook Inc. co-founder didn't sell a single share in the fourth quarter when the social media company's stock tumbled 20% amid a broader market rout. Facebook shares have dropped about 38% from a record U.S. of 218.62 on July 25th as the firm faced mounting criticism over its handling of user data and policing of content. Those issues will take years to fix, Zuckerberg has said, end quote. Well, that's very interesting to say the least. Before Facebook began to refuse our paid attempts to promote this show on Facebook, we had no problem boosting our promotions to an American audience. Then suddenly, and without any justification, except for the generalized crap we're hearing about fake news and the kind of advice we just read in this editorial, we were no longer permitted to boost our show to American audiences. Foreign influence, don't you know? But cite me one fake thing that we've ever broadcast on our hundreds and hundreds of broadcasts to help me understand why Americans have to be protected from this show. So you can well imagine how loudly I laughed when reading about Facebook's share slide. Since refusing to accept our money to promote Just Right on Facebook, and since we stopped advertising on Facebook entirely, hello, no wonder you're losing money, other people are doing the same thing, Facebook has increased its solicitations to us, encouraging us to boost our shows. But when we do that, we get a rejection notice. Why are they bothering us with their ads? Don't they have algorithms to tell them that we're to be avoided? Haven't they put that in their system? <laughs> Something is seriously wrong with Facebook, and it sounds like Zuckerberg is going to take years to fix it, probably because it'll take years before the next election occurs. <laughs> but all of this is just a tip of a huge iceberg, and it's time to get to the root of the problem. Whatever you're doing right now, this is a time to sit still, Sit down and take notice of what you are about to hear. Over the next 10 minutes or so, you will learn the truth, the facts, verifiable from a most credible source about what fake news is, who invented the term as we hear it today. And it only takes one person who actually knows what they're talking about to destroy the fake news and lies of millions. That person is Cheryl Atkinson, who spoke at Hillsdale College on a April 11th of last year, and I strongly urge all of you to check out her entire presentation, which is something that needs to be heard by every citizen in North America. Uh, our first speaker this morning is Cheryl Atkinson. She's an Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist and the host of Sinclair Broadcast Group's Sunday morning news program, Full Measure. Uh, previously, she has been a correspondent for CBS News and an anchor and correspondent for CNN. Uh, for five years while at CBS, she hosted Health Week, a half-hour weekly medical news magazine on PBS. She's a graduate of the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications, and she spent the early part of her career working in local news as a reporter and anchor and producer uh, in Florida and Ohio. She's received multiple awards for her work in addition to her Emmys. These include the Barbara Olson Award for Excellence and in Independence in Journalism, and the Edward R. Moreau Award for Excellence in Investigative Reporting. In the midst of her excellent reporting work, she also finds time to write. She is the co-author of a college textbook and author of two bestsellers. Uh, the most recent of these is The Smear, How Shady Political Operatives and Fake News 
control what you see, what you think, and how you vote. Uh, fake news is the subject of her talk this morning. Please welcome to the podium Cheryl Atkinson. So the subject of the talk was requested that I speak about is fake news a myth. And I thought I'd begin with an informal fake news survey. So question number one is going to be, when do you think the term fake news in its modern context started being used and argued about? Number two, who invented the phrase fake news in its modern context? I have some information for you all today that will surprise you. I too was surprised. The answer to the question is fake news first arose in its modern context, as far as I can tell, about two months before the election. It seemed like we've been talking about it for years. We had not been. I did a pretty thorough search on this. As I researched for my book, looking for the origins of this, of this I was surprised too. I remember, though, looking back that I first heard a hint of it when President Obama gave a speech, and it was on October 13, 2016, at Carnegie Mellon. In this speech, he insisted that somebody needed to step in and curate information in the wild, wild west media environment. I thought it was strange because literally, absolutely nobody was asking for any such thing. People in the public were not saying, please government or please third party step in and curate my information for me. But I knew it was no accident or off the cuff remark because when the president makes a speech like that and comes up with an idea, it's an initiative, it's an agenda. So what was it, I wondered? In whose interest did this, no did this notion serve? My question was, who wanted to control the information we were receiving on the internet and on the news and why? If you think about it, the internet is really kind of the last bastion where you can get every kind of idea imaginable, for better or for worse, uncensored. So if the government, for example, were to try to shape or censor a topic, well, the internet is the great equalizer. If the government or the corporations or the news media were to try to controversialize certain topics or censor them, well, you can still go and exchange these ideas on the internet. Who is it who doesn't want that to be the case is the question. But why didn't we call any of this fake news? When did that begin and why? Well, the f first widespread use of the phrase in its modern context that I could find was exactly one month before that President Obama speech at Carnegie Mellon. <coughs> On September 13, 2016, a nonprofit called First Draft announced a partnership to tackle malicious hoaxes and fake news reports. It seemed to be a legitimate thing. They said the goal was to separate wheat from chaff and to prevent unproven conspiracy talk from figuring prominently in internet searches to relegate today's version of the alien baby story to a special internet oblivion. Then came President Obama's speech. The topic of fake news suddenly dominated headlines from this point on every day. I mean, it seemed to me as if the media had been given its marching orders. Fake news, they insisted, was an imminent threat to American democracy. In November, a month later, President Obama continued his hard sell against fake news. This is 2016. He said in a speech, if we are not serious about facts and what's true and what's not, we can't discriminate between serious arguments and propaganda, then we have problems. If everything seems to be the same, no distinctions are made, then we won't know what to protect. We won't know what to fight for. I didn't know what he was talking about. Mind you, this was all the beginning of the campaign that we soon saw to aggressively fact check not only some in the news media, but every word that Trump utters or tweets. Not his predecessors or his opponents, mind you, but Trump. 
And it was also the beginning of the push that we saw for Facebook and Twitter and other third parties to judge and call out supposedly fake news. But as a reporter who studied the industry that seeks to manipulate us on behalf of paid interests, I know that few themes that arise on the news or few themes distributed through politicians arise organically. A noted propagandist I interviewed for my book, The Smear, told me, you know nearly every image that crosses your path in daily life or on the news was put there for a reason, often by someone who paid a lot of money to place it there. My question was, was the whole anti-fake news campaign an attempt to shape our views and limit our access to certain information by labeling selected websites and stories as fake and controversializing them? But who would be doing that? In the job that I have, I find that if you follow the money, you often get a lot of answers to questions. So I want to know who is behind the funding for that nonprofit first draft and its anti-fake news campaign. I did a little digging. What really wasn't very hard. It turns out the funding came from Google. Google's parent company, Alphabet, was headed at the time by a man named Eric Schmidt, who happens to have devoted himself to Hillary Clinton's election campaign offered himself up as a strategist to her campaign, and is listed right now on Open Secrets as her number one campaign donor through his company, Alphabet, with more than $1.6 million. So his company funded this nonprofit first draft around the start of the election cycle. So it's no surprise that Hillary Clinton's supporter and surrogate David Brock next turned up prominently in the anti-fake news movement. On December 5, 2016, Huffington Post published an opinion piece from Brock that seemed to blame conservative fake news for Hillary Clinton's defeat. Brock wrote this, Fake news is an existential threat to our democracy. For the first time in our history, we have a minister of disinformation, Trump advisor Steve Bannon, who commanded a vast proto-fascist media empire operating from a plum perch in the West Wing. The next day, Brock held a conference call detailing his plans to remake his flagship smear group, Media Matters, into something new, an effort that pivoted from being a Fox antagonist, he said, into an arbiter of what he called alt-right fake news outlets, all conservative, of course. Brock announced that he would be working personally to pressure Facebook and Google to better filter out fake news. The first order of business, he said, is for some of these companies to adopt standards and clean their own house. Just days after Brock and Clinton announced that they were going to go after fake news, Facebook cracked. It announced new steps to curb the spread of fake news. CBS reported at the time that that step was the result of months of public pressure. As far as I could tell, the months of public pressure came not from the public at large, but from special interests executing an orchestrated campaign. In fact, Brock would later tell his donors his, in Media Matters that he was largely responsible for forcing Facebook's hand. But suddenly, everybody was talking about fake news. It was on the headlines day in and day out. Then along came Donald Trump, the wild card. Probably the only politician that could have or would have been able to change this dynamic and kind of turn the campaign on its head. Each time advocates cried fake news, Donald Trump called them fake news. He made his rallying cry at rallies, and he called out CNN. Trump redefined it, basically. 
fake news he said was mainstream news organizations reporting false information or making mistakes due to sloppiness or bias so now the right had its definition the left had its definition meantime trump kept up the drumbeat and worked his supporters into a frenzy with his own campaign against his definition of fake news he managed to co-opt the term so completely that this kind of cracked me up in january of 2017 even some of the entities that were originally promoting the phrase started running from it and crying uncle for example the washington post wrote it's time to retire the tainted term fake news <laughs> in fact it's now commonly misreported that it was trump who thought up the phrase Actually, it was just a hostile takeover. Trump is pure genius, and I'll say it again until I have reason to say different. Best president ever in my lifetime. And on the fake news front, Trump pulled off a hostile epistemological takeover. I love it. <laughs> Define or be defined. Trump did exactly that by defining fake news as, quote, mainstream organizations reporting false information or making mistakes due to sloppiness or bias. Now, the first of two key concepts here is mainstream organizations, not blog posters, not elderly people who gossip on their porches, and not random Facebook posts. The second key concept is false information. Not disinformation, not foreign interference, not influencing, not opinion, or any of the other BS and never clarified terms that we hear from the left. This brings us back to the opening of the show today, the National Post editorial that lamented the lack of definition regarding what the government intended to censor or educate us about. But for the left, that is the plan, to not define its terms, leave everything in a muddled approximation. But still... Trump towers above the rest, and yes, we've used that play on words before, but it still holds true. Worst president ever, of course, Obama. And I nailed everything that there was to say about Obama within a week or two of his initial election victory on this show. So, when you hear from someone with credentials like Cheryl Atkinson, the weight of her testimony dwarfs that of all the major fake news networks combined. Once it is realized that the whole fake news phenomenon was started by the left in the Obama camp and that it was all about trying to defeat Trump and about nothing else, then the super great irony I mentioned regarding the roundtable discussion about seniors spreading fake news suddenly makes sense. The panelists were all reacting to a piece of outright false propaganda generated by a Facebook poll regarding seniors during the last presidential election. And now we know who put that idea in their heads. So it's not the Russians we should be worried about. As Cheryl Atkinson discovered and experienced, the threat to the fourth estate and to democracy comes from within the nation, and always from the left. And she's not alone in her experience. This is from the January 3rd Epoch Times, written by Zachary Stieber. Former New York Times editor slams papers Trump coverage is biased. Quote, a former New York Times executive editor says a newspaper she used to work for is, quote, unmistakably anti-Trump. Jill Abramson served as the outlet's executive editor from 2011 to 2014. In a soon-to-be-published book, Merchants of Truth, Abramson writes that the New York Times has become President Donald Trump's opposition party. Some headlines contained raw opinion, as did some of the stories that were labeled as news analysis, she said. 
The open bias has led to more distrust of the media, Abramson noted, and the younger staffers at the Times have pushed for open opposition against Trump. The more anti-Trump the Times was perceived to be, the more it was mistrusted for being biased. The more quote-unquote woke staff thought that urgent times called for urgent measures. The dangers of Trump's presidency obviated the old standards. The poll of nearly 4,000 adults in July 2018 revealed that 72% of respondents believe, quote, traditional major news sources report news they know to be fake, false, or purposely misleading, end quote. So there's another perspective giving the same kind of testimony that we heard in our previous clip. And just to put icing on the cake, here's Ben Shapiro responding to a question asked on one of the many college campuses he speaks at on November 8th, 2018. How do we stop the media with what they're doing dividing us? They're dividing us greatly. How can we exchange something to make it different? What can we do? Well, I mean, I think the first thing you can do is stop watching CNN and MSNBC. Um, <laughs> but I don't. I, I figured. I figured. From your question, I was assuming that. Um, but I mean, the, the good news is that I think that the, the age of a dominant left media is basically over. The fragmentation of the media is, this is one of the reasons I'm hopeful. The fragmentation of the media has taken place. Like our website, which didn't exist three years ago, now gets 140 million page views a month. So this is, so, the, and we're not unique in that area. Like there are, there are a lot of places that are getting more viewership. Also, I think more long form engagement is happening too. And one of the problems that I have with cable TV as in general is that you have to make an argument in two minutes flat or three minutes flat, which encourages you to make the broadest possible version of the argument and also to straw man the arguments. Uh, you, we're, we're all better off watching you know, hour long exchanges uh, than, than we are watching sort of the cable news cycle. Uh, and right now it seems like the, the polarization that's happening on cable news is largely driving a, a lot of the hatred because the, the easiest way, the easiest shortcut in politics to victory is to attack the character of the people you're talking about. And it's something I've been trying to, to work on myself because it's so hard not to just call people stupid. But, it's, <laughs> but, but with that said, uh, you know, there's, a, there's a Jewish principle called Don the Kafskus, which is to suggest that you have to assume the best of intentions on the part of people. Uh, as a general rule, that doesn't happen too much uh, in cable news. But I think the threat of the mainstream media is waning. I think President Trump has demonstrated. That's one of the things President Trump has demonstrated full scale. Uh, you know, this is what I've always said about President Trump is that President Trump is a hammer in search of a nail. Sometimes he gets a nail. Yeah. I mean, sometimes he gets a nail, sometimes he gets a baby. But when he hits it, <laughs> but when he when he hits a nail, it's deeply satisfying. And when he and when he's hitting the media for being dishonest, it's obvious that they are not only being dishonest uh, in in how they cover some stories, but that they are dishonest about their central reason for being. They say that they're there to objectively cover the truth, and they are not, which is why there's a poll just last week showing that, well, 58% of Americans didn't trust President Trump to tell the truth. 64% of Americans thought that the, the media were more polarizing than Trump, which is an amazing statistic. Uh, so, yeah, I think the media are on their way out. I think they got a problem. Thank you. Let's be very clear. 
To be sure, the right to free press is enshrined in our charter of rights and freedoms. And for good reason, it's how we the people are able to shine a microscope onto our government proceedings. It's how we keep them accountable and are able to criticize them freely. So to keep a good sort of democratic hygiene to this place. And let's say that truly fake news does come out, a real lie provable lie about an individual or a political party or about the proceedings of some historical event, Canada already has libel and defamation laws on our books. So what gives? Why spend millions of taxpayer dollars for this new censorious wrong think, let's be honest, panel? Well, of course, we already know the answer. It's because the prime minister is now trying to target, you know, members of the non-mainstream media who he can't just buy off. And that's something that we should be very concerned about because without freedom of the press and freedom of thought and expression, yes, including online, our entire democracy is at risk. Consider the contrast between Faith Goldie's conclusion that our entire democracy is at risk because of the Trudeau government's initiatives and Global Mail editorialist Marcus Kolga, who concluded that our entire democracy is at risk if we don't enact the Trudeau government initiatives. And he even says those initiatives don't go far enough. Shapiro's optimism about the left-wing media breaking down would be something I would share were it not for the fact that the leftist governments, both in Canada and the U.S., are now taking state action against media freedom. It's precisely because the left is beginning to lose that it will cheat and lie. This is the side of the political polarity, remember, to whom facts don't matter, and they've pretty much said so already. Now, Marcus Kolga referred to an official European website called EU versus Disinfo as a source for ferreting out fake news. But you don't need governments to set up such sites. And when they do, they're even more suspect than a lot of the fake news itself. www.hoax.news, and there's an example of a private website, and here's an article from there by Ethan Huff published January 24th with a head heading fake BuzzFeed. And it reads, quote, We're not even through the month of January, and the mainstream media has already been caught in at least four fake news reporting scandals thus far this year, most recently and notably the Covington High School fiasco at the Lincoln Memorial. Even as they whine and moan about being called fake news, fake news outlets like CNN, The Washington Post, BuzzFeed News, NBC News, and The New York Times have all been repeatedly caught, completely making up stories that never actually happened and peddling them to readers and viewers as fact. The following are the four most notable fake news stories to hit airwaves in print over the past several weeks. 1. Not a single conservative was outraged over some stupid video of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez dancing. At the start of 2019, a wave of fake news outlets suddenly began reporting that conservatives were outraged over a video clip that nobody actually watched. The premise of this fake news was that conservatives were trying to embarrass the socialists by sharing the video and that it backfired to quote Reuters, CNN, and others. But there's just one problem. No conservatives even watched the video, let alone tried to share it in an attempt to embarrass the New York representative. In other words, it was a completely made-up attempt by fake news to claim some kind of lame gotcha moment against conservatives. 
Number two, there's no evidence that Lindsey Graham only supports President Trump because of secret proof he's a closet homosexual. <laughs> Roughly nine days after spreading the ACO hoax, the mainstream media decided to manufacture another fake news headline, this time taking aim at Senator Lindsey Graham. The premise of this fake news hoax is that Graham only supports President Trump because the commander-in-chief has secret evidence that Graham is a closet homosexual. Not surprisingly, there's no proof of this whatsoever, but neither CNN nor MSNBC, the two fake news outlets that led the pack in spreading this fake news, have ever corrected, retracted, or apologized for the hoax. Number three. Just prior to the Covington hoax, BuzzFeed News published a ridiculous hit piece about President Trump that claimed he instructed former personal attorney Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about a real estate deal. This fake news was so blatantly fake that none other than special counsel Robert Mueller came out to declare it as such, completely embarrassing BuzzFeed and exposing it once again as a purveyor of fake news lies. And then, of course, there's the Covington boys were victims of racist hate speech by black supremacists and a lying Indian elder. And of course, rather than retract the ridiculous fake news story, BuzzFeed simply rode the mainstream media train into the station of its next fake news lie about the Covington Catholic High School boys, who nearly every fake news outlet on the planet falsely accused of harassing and taunting an Indian elder on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Well, we know all about that one because we covered it in quite a bit of detail on this show. But to get to the point and the bottom line of all of this, I guess, the media is dishonest about its dishonesty. Fake news accusations have become the screen behind which the worst media offenders hide. In the broadest democratic terms, fake news is a non-issue to the electoral process. Most voters are already operating not on fake news, but on fake understandings of everything from who their candidates are to how the electoral process works and why. <laughs> I mean, there are still wackos screaming one man, one vote in opposition to America's electoral college. I mean, that's, I call that a democracy derangement syndrome. And then, of course, there's a rewriting of political and national history to create fake history that coincides with the fake current event narrative of the left. Most voters don't know or understand the difference between left and right, or why it's even necessary to know that there is a difference. In fact, they, they, they dismiss it you know, to their own detriment. Worst, most of what they do know is knowledge, as we've said before, that just ain't so. Ain't so much what people don't know that gets them into trouble, it's what they do know that just ain't so. Doesn't that speak to fake news right to the heart? And the great irony of that saying in today's context is that it's most applicable to those who believe in the mainstream media. It's far less applicable to those who go shopping for alternative coverage and views online. It's not elections that the left is concerned about. It's ideas. Like our Planet of the Apes opener today, the individual's ability to think independently and for himself is the greatest threat to anyone who's a collectivist and sees other individuals as mere pieces of some collective. So, fake off already and get real. The real news, that is, and the real ideas. Remember, some things are black and white. Some things are wrong and right. Some things are left and right. And some things are just right. 
like this show, which returns again next week when we will, as always, continue on our journey in the right direction, and you're invited. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. <laughs> Dr. Canyon's formula for invisibility is really quite simple. All objects reflect or refract light waves. The formula merely changes the absorption ratio so that the optic nerve is unable to transmit light impulses to the cerebellum, thus rendering anything it touches imperceptible. Well, that's easy for you to say. <laughs> Max, in other words, it has the ability to cloud men's minds. Hey, Chief, that'd come in very handy during an election. <laughs>